I was gonna start out with a uh, with a clever video, um, or not like super clever video, but um, uh, just a video depiction of the crossing of the Red Sea. But in, in uh, ah, sorry, in the um, movie The Prince of Egypt, but that's not gonna work. So we will just jump right into uh, Exodus. So as I promised, we are looking at chapters five through fifteen. Um, plagues and the crossing of the sea. So the two main parts of the Exodus story. So we have uh, Exodus 1 through 4, right, is setting us up for the whole thing. Remember we talked about it's setting us up between the conflict between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And Exodus, uh, the author of Exodus, Moses, is using all of this um, language in 1 through 4 repeated from Genesis so that we get this picture of a, um, of a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh, or, you know, kind of the embodiment of evil uh, in this story. Now, this sets us up to um, the next big section of the story, um, 5 through 15, essentially. Um, So, how does Yahweh achieve victory in this second part of the story? That's the question that um, hopefully we'll be able to answer when we get out of here. Um, Any thoughts? Hopefully, you should probably already know. If you're here, if you're a Christian, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, how do the people leave? How do they get to walk out, though? Huh? Uh huh. God over all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So he sets up the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues are this way that the people of Israel get out of um, Egypt. They escalate, okay? Um, And this is God, the rationale for the plagues here is God demonstrating his supremacy over the Egyptian gods and goddesses, okay? So um, the question is that the narrative is very clear, okay, that Yahweh is defeating Oh. Oh, okay. That's okay. That happens. So Yahweh is establishing his preeminence and his dominance over the gods and goddesses of Egypt through all of these various plagues. And so there's nothing in the text that tells us like that there are specific plagues, right? So in general, God is showing that he is dominant over the gods of Egypt but he's not showing that specifically each individual God, if that makes sense. So like taken as a whole, and it's the same thing that we see in other places throughout the Bible. God is is powerful over the sea. God is powerful, which is the chaos God. God is, uh, in Job, talks about he is more powerful than Leviathan and the behemoth. These are two chaos monsters, okay, in the Old Testament, all right? Um, the narrative doesn't mention a judgment against a particular God, okay? Um, and here, like, th- this I think is important that if, if the biblical author wanted to say, I'm definitely demonstrating my preeminence and dominance over um, this God or that God, I was like trying to think of one that couldn't, um, then he could have. But I mean, at the same time, you can look at, like, the sun being blackened out, Who's the sun god in Egypt? 
Ra, right? And so you have that correlation, like Yahweh is more powerful than the sun god. And even one of the things that um, the Bible brings out, like in creation, is like the sun isn't even named. The sun's not named, the moon isn't named, the stars aren't named. They don't even, like, they are subservient to the Lord. He, he creates them. Like, they don't even get a name um, in, in the same way that they do in other cultures, okay? The conflict here is the um, conflict between, like, Yahweh's spoken word, right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, um, and then his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the human revolution or rebellion against that word. So the reason that the, that the uh, Bible gives for these plagues, <clears throat> Pharaoh refused to release God's son. Let's look at these passages. Would someone like to read Exodus 4, 21 through 23? Oh, hey, Ben. Kate, will you sing it? Okay, so this is like where it really, um, this is a foreshadowing. We talked about this last week where God says like, look, at the very beginning, he says he's gonna kill, kill Pharaoh's firstborn son in judgment of Pharaoh not letting his own firstborn son go. All right, the second reason is to demonstrate God's power. Will someone read six, one through nine? Thank you. Thank you. 
So this first, the second reason here is to demonstrate God's power. And we're going to get to this here in a minute. Well, I'll just wait. Um, God's word to the ancestors, to the Hebrew ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a God who keeps his word. He does what he says he's going to do. Um, and then God would take Israel as his own possession. So there's a lot going on in these nine verses, okay, where the Lord is saying, He's establishing, like in, in the ancient Near Eastern context, what God is doing is establishing his, um, like the validity of his claim to be their um, overlord. The, like the word is suzerain. Like if you think about um, like, a, like a master, okay? He's, he's demonstrating his, like why he has the right and the authority to claim Israel as his own people and to then make them, make a covenant with, him, with them, okay? So there's a lot going on in these, in these verses that is gonna be important for the whole rest of the Bible, really. This is where it starts with God establishing this relationship. Um, and we know this from like the terms where he talks about remembering his covenant. Um, he is going to bring them out from the burdens of Egypt. So when a suzerain or an overlord, when they made a covenant with another country, they would say, they would start out with um, a statement of who they are, like, I am Esarhaddon, king of the Assyrians. I did X, Y, and Z. I did all of these things for you, right? So I, you know, they would, they would generally be much more violent. Like, I conquered all the lands around you, and I spared you from whatever, okay? So the Lord is saying, look, I'm Yahweh. That's the introduction of who he is. And then the reason that he has the right to establish this covenant relationship, this relationship where the people of Israel will do what he says, essentially. And like the thing is, they don't really have a choice in this. They can choose to rebel, but then they get bad things happen to them. It's like, um, uh, if you think about, um, like when, the, when Great Britain and Spain and Portugal and other countries um, like colonized um, the new world, they could come over and say, all right, I, we, are, we now own all of this land. And it, the indigenous peoples could say, no, you don't. And then what happened? They got killed, right? The um, colonizers said, well, actually we do, and we're going to kill all of you, right? So there's not, really, uh, there, there's not really a chance or an opportunity or even the real possibility that Israel would say, like, no, we're not going to do this. Because God is saying, I'm Yahweh, I'm taking you out from uh, under the hand of the Egyptians. Like, and so, because of that, you're mine, right? He's buying them back. Okay. The next big reason is so Egypt would know that Yahweh is God. Someone reads 6, 26 through 7, 7. Lots of scripture reading tonight. Mm-hmm.
Man, uh, you guys who were at um, West last night, this is, uh, or yesterday, it's an interesting um, retirement plan, right, for Moses and Aaron. In their 80s, they're going to enter into Egypt and um, confront the literally most powerful person in the world and say, let your workforce, your free workforce go, and, or God is going to kill your son. It's kind of a bold statement. All right. Um, so he want, God wants Egypt to know that Yahweh is God, okay? So he's demonstrating his um, authority and preeminence over the Egyptian gods. He is um, keeping his word to the people of it, to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's taking Israel as his possession. He's showing that he is God, and he's also demonstrating his uniqueness, if this book does not make you think, man, we God is God is powerful, then um, then check your pulse. Okay, fourteen through sixteen, chapter nine. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you and yourself, and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all strength. For by now, I could have put you out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And he goes on to say, you're still exalting yourself against my people and you won't let them go. Behold, I'm gonna cause a very heavy hell to fall tomorrow. Okay, so the Lord is saying, look, I could have already done all of this. I could have sent, sent a pestilence or a plague and take, completely taken everyone out and killed everyone and Egypt would no longer exist and my people would be free and safe and all of that. But instead, I'm going to go through, or God is going to go through this series of 10 plagues in like increasing intensity and power to demonstrate his, his own power and uniqueness and sovereignty. And the part that like gets me is he says that he, he raised them up for that very purpose. I mean, that's a little frightening, right? If you think about God raising up these people and not just killing them all with a famine, so that he can inflict 10 plagues on them in order to show his power and his uniqueness and who he is. Um, that, that's pretty intense. Do you guys have any questions so far? Any questions? Okay. The whole empire. So like everything that Egypt, you know, I don't know. Good question. Yeah. It's like a lot. There's like a whole lot. <laughs> okay. So we're going to move on from the plagues to talking about uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? So we've already seen a little bit in here that God repeatedly says, I'm going to harden your heart. Okay. So here's a question I want you guys to, to work, about, work on in your groups. Um, uh, two, two questions, actually. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And second, was it just for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? So if we think about from the very get-go, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go. And then I'm going to eventually kill his son, right? So like that's in chapter four. That's way before we get to any of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So why did God do this? And is it just or was it right or okay for God to do this or fair? So working on that question in your groups, in small groups.
in the car. You want me to go get it? I'm not a preacher, the son of a preacher. Mm -hmm. I like the shirt.
Brit has one like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. All right, so take about three or four more minutes on this question, on these, on these questions. Be sure to get to the "was it just" part. That's hey, you said it, man, not me. Hey, will you just go ahead and sit over there? You know. <laughs> It's been at least 80, 80 years since they since that. So. All right, so was it just for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, do you guys think? Okay, why? Because you can't say no, yeah. I know. Okay. So if you, so do you guys agree with what Will said, that if God does something, it's just? Okay, so like that, I mean, the, that answer is driven by a particular theology, right? 
So Will and all of us hopefully hold to a high view of God's sovereignty, and we think that what God does is right, period. Like, that's, that's how would an unbeliever or someone with a different worldview or, or view of the Bible, what, how do you think, how could you convince them? Or could you? What would you say? If someone's like, well, I don't think what God does is just. I mean, how do you, how do you argue against that? Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's good to like argue like uh, I, I, so I don't say I'm not saying like like we need to like stand up and be apologists and like defend the faith I don't think the faith needs defending um, but uh, but yeah how do you help someone understand it yeah. Keep going, that's good. But the Bible says, because Pharaoh refused to release God's son to demonstrate God's power, God's word to the Hebrew ancestors, God to take Israel as his own possession, and so Egypt would know Yahweh as God, and so Yahweh could demonstrate his uniqueness. So like, I, I agree with you, but like the narrative doesn't say. Gotcha. I'm not putting Britt on the spot, okay? She's, a, she's can totally like, okay, all right. Good, so. Clavinist? <laughs> yeah. So 
right. needs to happen with that barrier mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. If God needs to overcome it in order for not only his glory to be shown, but for his promises to be fulfilled. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's awesome. Well said. Yeah. So you have, like, I, I hadn't even, like, made, I hadn't made that connection where you have the flood is, you know, people aren't doing what God says to do. He kills them all. Tower of Babel, he disperses them, right? Brings Abraham out, and they go to Egypt, and now there's this other barrier to the fulfillment of God's promise. You should teach the class, okay? That was awesome. Yeah. What Britt was talking about, too, was this kind of, like, if you wanted to put a name to it, um, it's like a, a retributive justice view of like how God deals with nations. Essentially, you have like the idea is that you have two scales, and like when the bad outweighs the good, it tips, and then God judges. You know, and so what you see with um, Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, when Habakkuk, Habakkuk is saying, "God, when you know, do you not see all this violence?" And God says, "Yeah, I do, and I'm going to bring judgment on Judah." And then Habakkuk says, "Wait, wait, wait, that's not what I meant." Like. Babylon is even worse than Judah. Oh, well. Speak of the devil. Huh? No, sorry. And, and so God says, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm also going to defeat the Babylonians, right? So I'm going to bring judgment on them also. And then in the whole, the beginning when Abraham, God is making this promise to Abraham, he says, look, you guys, your people are going to be in a very dark place for 400 years so that the sin of the Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites can run its course. And then when we get to Joshua, we again have God using his people to execute his justice on these people. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so the primary reason God hardens Pharaoh's heart is so that, to perform these plagues. And what I wanted, the 10th plague, purchase the firstborn. All right, I want to get to this. All right. Okay. Um, the significance of the accounts of hardening. Okay, so there's, they are this um, three sets of three plagues, okay? So you have sets um, one, two, three, okay? Uh, or plagues one, two, three, and then you have this narrative, um, this narrative um, report of the, of, uh, sorry, I'm like totally losing my place here. See, I don't like have all this memorized, unfortunately. Okay, after what? <laughs> You like <laughs> after each plague, there's this report of uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So the way it works is plague, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Six times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So we learn in chapter four, God says, "I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart." But six times before the Lord hardens his heart, He hardens His own heart. And I've been thinking, like thinking about Pharaoh hardening his heart, and Brit is trying to. It's mainly Brit uh, trying to um, sleep train our kids to like make them stay in their bed, um, like our youngest two, and they're like way too young to have like to not be in a crib, but they climb out and fall on their head. And anyway, um, yeah, it's horrible. And so I just keep thinking of of our youngest Abel will like sit there and like he like no like he the Brit showed me this video of him like climbing from the crib onto a chair and he's like clinging to the edge of the crib so that his feet don't touch the ground because he knows if his feet touch the ground he's in trouble <laughs> and so oh man it's great Britt will show you later oh yeah and, and uh <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. Now you would think like you, you it seemed like a clear rule, but he found a way to to you know break it by. So anyway, I just think of him like um, I don't think he's like Pharaoh, but he is stubborn and wants to do what he wants to do. And so six different times we have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Okay, and then we have this interaction between Yahweh hardens it, God. Yeah, Pharaoh hardens it. Yeah. Or was it just an act of like, uh, like a, I'm just visualizing God speaking his heart and I don't know. I think it's both. I mean, I think Pharaoh was like a level of evil that it's hard for us to understand. You know what I mean? Just think like Hitler or um, um, who was the guy who led the Khmer Rouge? I'm trying to come up with an Asian. Huh? Pol Pot? Huh? Because Pol Pot was in Cambodia, yeah. Um, think of like these leaders who are just like uh, Joseph Stalin, like these people killing millions of people, like they're evil. So yeah, I think that God, so I think it is partially his, his personality, you know, but then I also think it's like continually like doing evil things makes him more evil, you know. Is that, is that enough that helps or not? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One thing that is really, you know, difficult um, in the Bible is we have a God who, um, like the Bible doesn't shy away from, from blaming God for things, like saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, there's a passage that says, you know, where the Lord says, is there, is there destruction that comes to a city and I didn't do it, you know? I mean, like, stuff like that. Like, look at the Job where he says, yeah, I mean, do what you got to do, Satan. Take Job, you know, you can't kill him, but everything else, feel free. Um, and that's like a level of sovereignty and power that makes us uncomfortable. But at the same time, the Bible also is very clear that humans have responsibility, you know? Like, Pharaoh hardened his heart, you know? God said, I'm going to harden it. Pharaoh hardened it, and Pharaoh suffered the consequences for that hardening, and the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Um, and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. You Methodist? I said you Methodist? Uh-huh, yeah. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, come on, I'm, I'm serious, yeah. All right, so I want to get to, we're like quickly running out of time. Um, all right, I'm going to put all this up here, sorry. 
Um, the final plague was worship and event. So we have three sets of three plagues. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and then the Passover. And this is like the one that's really... Um, What do you mean? Well, you have like, um, you have a hardening of the heart and then like plague, hardening, plague, hardening, plague, hardening, and then another hardening, <laughs> and then plague, hardening, plague, hardening, plague. So they're just like set up with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart interspersed between each three. Yeah. And then they're escalating in damage done. I mean, think about this guy, though. Think about Pharaoh just, like, digging in. I mean, like, it's so, you read it, and you're like, dude, this is so stupid. Like, you were, like, dug in on God. Uh, uh, it's crazy, right? Um, so the Passover is this, you have this intertwining of um, this, the worship and the event of the Passover. And you guys know the story, right, where you have God says, go and put the um, blood you know, you're going to kill this lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the um, angel of death is, like, Pesach is, is the word Passover, and Passover isn't really, um, like, a great translation. It's more like, like, cover over, you know, and so that the blood, um, like, protected the people from the angel of death, right? So this, um, this story is dark. I mean, the whole thing, um, but you have, uh, the blood of this lamb is what bought the freedom of the people. But at the same time, this is where God purchases um, the firstborn, right? So he's, he's using this to say, I own Israel, right? All of you, like, and so this is like the um, principle of, the t of tithing in the same way. You know, when you give a tithe to the Lord, you're recognizing his sovereignty. You're recognizing um, that he owns everything that you have and that ultimately he's responsible for you. When the Israelites were, um, you know, putting the blood on their doorframe, they were recognizing that they are owned by God and that only doing what God says to do is going to keep them um, safe from this, this death angel that God is sending, okay? All right, you guys have questions? Um, all right, yeah, so the central importance of this is instructing the next generation. So the Lord says here that, like, the reason... Uh, he, he says, like, you need to tell everyone what happens. And even now, if you go to um, a uh, synagogue, like, for, for Passover, they say, when we went out of Egypt, when God delivered us out of Egypt, like, they, they embrace this narrative as their own. And as they do Passover, they're saying, they're making this part of their story. They're saying, we, and, that, and that's really important when we get to the book of Deuteronomy. Sometime we'll get there. Um, when the people of God, Moses is speaking to Israel, and he says, when God brought you out of Egypt. And, but everyone there, no one there was brought out of Egypt. You know, they were all, like, that whole generation died. And yet Moses still says, when God brought you out of Egypt. And so this Passover, or covering over, or protecting, is in a worship event whereby God purchased Israel, brings them out of Egypt, protects them um, from death, um, and then like establishes this yearly event that reminds the people where they came from, right? And throughout the rest of the Bible, it says, I brought you out of Egypt. 
I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. And then there's this yearly festival um, where the people are uh, really recreate or mimic what they did in this festival to remind them of who they are and where they came from and who owns them. And it's the Lord, you know. Um, and then, of course, what happens, you know, 1,500 years later? Yeah, Jesus dies on the cross during the Passover festival. And, like, the New Testament makes a really big deal about Jesus being the sacrificial lamb and puts an end to the Passover. Because this, you know, you have these yearly sacrifices where, I mean, they're literally, like, slitting the throat of a lamb. Um, I know you Louisiana people, that's probably not a big deal to y'all. But, like, for somebody like me, it's, like, really difficult to think about. Like, Britt has to kill all the animals in our house. Um, huh? Yeah. Yeah, any time any, anytime there's like an animal or something that's not our dog, she kills it. Yeah. Yeah, she is the, yeah. And so the Lord, um, yeah, it's not regular. It's not like every day. Not, yeah. Boom, it's dead. Yeah. Don't bring your dog to the house. It's like her. It's like uh. It's like kind of Pharaoh-esque. It's um. You know, she hardens her heart. God hardens it, and then next thing you know, she's got a shovel. There's a dead animal on the ground. Yeah, exactly. No, so. So for think about for 1,500 years, um, God's people are practicing this festival, saying, "I am God's. God rescued me." Like, he did not kill the firstborn of Israel. Um, and then, finally, in the New Testament, we pick up on this, and Jesus comes along and is, like, there to fulfill the Passover, right? He puts an end to this festival um, because he buys them once and for all. Like, so there's no longer any need for this remembrance. We don't have to slit a lamb's throat and put um, blood on our doorpost um, because God saw fit to sacrifice his own son. So we have like the giving of the firstborn, Jesus, for all of us, right? So the lamb was so that Israel did not lose their firstborn. And then God gave, sacrificed his own firstborn, you know? Um, and if you guys, everyone has, well, Gina, Daniel, you guys don't have kids. Kate, you don't have kids. But when you like, well, neither do you, Chris, sorry. When you have that, like when you get, when you like, experience like this firstborn child, um, I think it brings a lot of life um, to kind of the, what, what God did, you know? Um, so you have this exchange where, I mean, it's just impossible to even think about, you know? I mean, think about um, who you are and God giving his son for you, you know? And for me, for us, it's pretty intense. And I think Exodus helps us to better understand what's going on there. Okay, I'm going to stop there. There's more stuff to do or to look at, um, but we will, yeah. All right, we'll just go over these like last two, last few points next week uh, when we go into, and we'll go into the um, wilderness wanderings and the tabernacle and all that stuff. Yeah. I know, I don't want to start another thing. I want to end like, Thank you, Kate. <laughs>
All right, pray we pray for us. A mixed multitude came out of Egypt. It wasn't just ethnic Israelites. Yeah, absolutely. Um, take my class. And now, um, yeah, that's a, a really, really good point. Um, that like God is like what makes an Israelite an Israelite? You know, Paul is later going to say, "Not all Israel is Israel." What does he mean by that? Well, we have all these examples, like what you just mentioned. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 